Well, today we're continuing our summer series in the book of Isaiah. Uh, we've been here for several months, and the way we've approached Isaiah is to look at several major themes in this majestic book. The idea of preaching through it uh, verse by verse is um, quite intimidating. Um, but uh, we, what, the way we've packaged it is to do themes throughout the book. Um, today we're on part three of a four-part mini-series on the theme of justice. Christian started looking at uh, started this series a couple weeks ago, and we were looking at the idea of the two sides of justice. There's the retributive justice and there's restorative justice. And he explained that retributive justice is God punishing those who have done wrong. That's the kind of justice we most often think about. There needs to be justice. Those, those who have done wrong need to get what, they're, what, what they have coming to them. But the, res, the other side of justice is restorative justice. This is the side of it that, that I think is just new for a lot of us. It's new for me. And I think it's, it's new for a lot of us. And, and the idea of restorative justice is, is the idea of imitating God's heart to restore dignity to the marginalized of the world so that they can flourish as image bearers. That's restorative justice, restoring them back to their intended purpose by God. Last week, we started expanding this idea of restorative justice, and we'll continue that today and next week. Last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 61. We saw several facets of what it means to do justice, to do restorative justice. It's proclaiming the gospel. Uh, Jesus was anointed to proclaim the good news to the marginalized. As are we, and we do that by binding up the brokenhearted, by proclaiming liberty to those in bondage, to captives, by proclaiming the day of vengeance of our God, which is part of his retributive justice, but it's still a sense of hope for those who need restored. Excuse me, need restored. And we also do this by comforting those who mourn. And so all these all these different ways that we do restorative justice. It's not just telling people about Jesus. It's demonstrating to people Jesus' heart to restore dignity and cause them to flourish, to thrive in their, in their lives and in their walk with Jesus. We, we, we summarized it last week by using that two-word phrase. Do you remember? Enter in. Thank you. We enter in to their lives. We enter in. And uh, I've talked to several people this week. I've talked to some this morning. I've been, my wife and I have been talking, like, enter in. How do, how do we do that? What's that look like? And I think it's just we need to keep exploring this and keep pushing this out. Uh, today we'll be in Isaiah chapter 59. Uh, turn there in your Bibles. If the ushers are out and have Bibles, I'll see them anyway. If they do, uh, and you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll give you a Bible. Isaiah chapter 59. Now, God's intent for, for humanity is for all of us to be restored to fullness in Christ. We saw Jesus' heart to do that as he healed and cast out demons. And I was thinking about that as we sang that one song. I can never remember lyrics, but, but it's, it's the blind will see and, and the lame will walk and the dead will rise. That's, that's what Jesus did in, in restoring uh, dignity and life back to those who have been marginalized. He wants people to flourish and find their joy and find their identity in Him. But society and humanity is deeply broken. 
and, and society and humanity in this broken state has crushed people, marginalized so many people. They've been pushed to the fringes. They've been told they aren't as good as someone else. You aren't as good as somebody who has more money than you or has a different skin color than you or has better athletic abilities than you do or whatever it is. The marginalized of the world are, are those that seem to get run over the most. And so throughout Scripture, we see that God has a heart to restore them to dignity so that they can flourish. Now that's how our sinful, worldly, broken society is. But we, the church, followers of Jesus, those of us sitting here that name the name of Jesus, we're to function differently than the world. We're to, we're to model to the sick, broken world around us how to treat one another with grace and love and honor and dignity so that we can show off God's grace. When, when we were sick and broken with sin, he extended grace to us and he saved us. So we model, as the church, we model the same to the world. Through Jesus, we work to, to restore the poor, the disabled, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the marginalized, starting within the church, starting right here within our body. Galatians 6.10 says that, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So doing justice starts right here in this room, or in this, not this room, but this body of people that are represented in this room. Now, we can't solve world hunger, but maybe we can solve hunger at Cornerstone Church. Do you know there's hungry people in Cornerstone Church? We, can't, we probably can't solve world poverty, but maybe we can solve poverty within our church. And some of that will spill over into the larger world, into the surrounding community, into Simi Valley, over into the valley, into L.A., through California, the United States, and the world. By extension, we're ministering to the world. You heard the Isbeks in Poland, and they are an extension of us, and they are restoring dignity to people there. People will see how it's supposed to work. John says, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And I could add to that, they'll know we are Christians by how we do justice, by how we restore the marginalized to full dignity and participation in the family of believers. Whatever it takes to cause the members of our church to flourish. Man, this should give every one of us who are members of this church hope and encouragement. Except we fail. We don't do it well. We mess up. The sobering message throughout Isaiah 59 is that we are not doing justice. We are not entering it. Isaiah 59 was written to Judah, the, the, what was left of the nation of Israel. And they were doing terrible, taking care of their own. It's just, a must, just as much a message to us. How are we doing? How am I doing? How are you doing? Look at a few, a few key phrases from chapter 59 of Isaiah. Verse 8, the way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. I titled the sermon, There is no justice from this verse. There is no justice. Verse 9, therefore, justice is far from us. 
and righteousness does not overtake it. See how justice and righteousness are, are played together. Christian talked about that a couple of weeks ago and how these two words show up so many times. Verse 11, we hope for justice, but there is none. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Verse 15, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Now, like I said last week, this study has been a challenge for me. It, it, it's an aspect of the heart of God that I've just not been tuned into very well. I had one person tell me, would you hurry up and finish the series? It's so convicted. <laughs> and I kind of feel the same way. Like, let's, let's be done already. Get on something that's more fun. This, this is, there, there's so many questions about this. As I've talked about this with people, it's like, what about this? What about this? What about this? It's like, oh man, we're, we're, we're raising far more questions than we're answering. So much is not being said, even in this four-part mini-series. But I hope and pray that this raises questions and starts conversations. So hang on, we're going to keep on going for another week. Right? Yeah, after today. And we're going to look at two questions today. What I want to do is dig into Isaiah 59 and ask and answer two questions about the fact that there is no justice. First question is, why is there no justice? Why don't we enter in? Why not? Why does Isaiah, all through this chapter, repeatedly say there is no justice, there is no justice, there is no justice? Second question is, what's the solution? There's got to be an answer. What is the answer? What will it take for us to begin doing justice and enter in as we should? Now, last week, again, we, we had that little idea of entering in. I don't think it's literally a little idea. I think it's a huge idea. But I want to expand it this morning and add to it with two more words. Enter in even when. We're going to unpack that as we go, go through here this morning. But the idea here is that we can come up with all kinds of excuses and reasons uh, not to enter into people's lives. But the message is that we need to enter in even when it's hard or it's difficult, or we don't want to, or we don't have time to, or we aren't sure what to do. So enter in even when. Got it? Four words. Really simple. Uh, how many put this even, how many of you put enter in on your bathroom mirror, your rear view mirror, sticking up your computer? <laughs> Nobody. Wow. <laughs> so my preaching really effective. <laughs> That's why there's no justice, because nobody's listening. <laughs> well, those of you that didn't do it, add to it even when this week. Okay. Alright, let's 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 look at the first question. Why is there no justice? Why don't we enter it? Why don't we put sticky notes on our computer screens? Uh, what's going on here? What are the excuses that we use? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and we're going to look at a lot of those reasons, but Isaiah gives the answer in one word, and it is sin. Sin is a violation of God's moral will. It's a violation of his standard. Israel failed at caring for the marginalized because of sin. The church fails at doing it because of sin. I fail at it because of sin. People are marginalized and pushed to the fringes of society because of sin. 
Look at verses 1 and 2, Isaiah 59. Behold, the, hand, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities, your sin, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Israel has been asking God, why doesn't God seem to answer prayer? Verse 1 is, is, is hinting at that. Why isn't he blessing us? Maybe he isn't strong enough. Maybe he doesn't hear us. No, of course not. It's because of their sin that there is a separation. This phrase, made a separation, that we used here in verse 2, it's, it's used in Genesis 1, 6, where the separation between the waters on earth and the waters in the heavens as, as God was creating the universe. It's a vast divide. That's the idea here. Sin is a barrier. It's, it's a divide between humanity and, and God. Because of sin, he does not hear us. Because of sin, we cannot see his face. Because of sin, we don't know his heart. We don't know his heart for the marginalized. Or we don't understand what it is he wants us to do. I'm reading the biography of, uh, of Henry Martin. Um, sorry, it's the clock. Um, is that right? Five till ten? Okay. I'm reading the biography of Henry Martin, missionary to India in the early 1800s. Uh, the, writer, the writer made this statement about him that really caught my eye. About Henry Martin, he said, to him, sin was exceedingly sinful. Got that? To, to Henry Martin, sin was exceedingly sinful. I have been thinking about that all week. Is the sin of not imitating God's heart for justice exceedingly sinful to me? Is sin exceedingly sinful? We need to grasp the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Those pet sins that we kind of keep secret, those are a big deal. Yes. The world is out there, is a terrible, broken place, and there's all kinds of, of horrible things happening. Three mass shootings this week. I'm sure you've watched the news. Two yesterday. It's a sick world. It's a, it's, it's a horrible world. But sin is also that, that pride, that self-sufficiency, that whole facade of looking like we have everything together when we really don't. Sin is that my secret battle, your secret battle, our secret battle with, with money or with pride or with lust or with pornography. Sin is insidious and pervasive and permeates every corner of my being. When I was a kid, I thought if I, if I confessed up all my sin, that I would be sinless for a few minutes. And, and I thought, I really like that idea that I could confess everything I can think of and then for at least two or three minutes, I would think, I would be sinless. No, no, I'm sinful through and through. My thoughts, my motives, my attitudes, my sin is exceedingly sinful. Since sin causes this separation such that we can no longer see God's face and know his heart, we resort to our old sinful ways and we begin to treat people unjustly. We become guilty of marginalizing people, pushing them to the fringes of society. Look at verses 3 and 4. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. 
No one enters suit. In other words, a lawsuit or a legal proceeding. No one does that justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. In other words, because of sin, justice is not being done. There is dishonesty. There is lying. And the marginalized especially are at risk in these situations. One commentator I was reading explains that the reason why society is so messed up is that justice has been corrupted to the point that it no longer exists to hold all people up to the same fair standard. Rather, it seems that our legal system is designed so that the strong and the clever and the rich can twist it to their own purposes. Yeah? So we have social collapse, we have marginalization, we have unfair treatment, and, and, and the marginalized people of society are the ones who are most run over and trampled in that kind of situation. Another, Another way that sin manifests itself is in all the excuses we give for not doing justice, for not entering into people's lives. A couple, couple weeks ago, Christian mentioned Tim Keller's book, Generous, Generous Justice. And I, and I would echo that. It's a great, great place to start reading about justice. If this, this, if this topic piques your, your interest, this is a great, great place to start. In his, in his book, Keller uses a, a sermon, sermon that Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards preached in 17, 1733 called The Duty of Charity to the Poor. And, and Keller uses Edwards' sermon to answer a lot of the excuses for not doing justice. Now, I've added some of my own thoughts, but i gotta, I got to give credit to Keller and Edwards for the following excuses and rebuttals from Scripture to those excuses. So see if you can relate to any of this. First excuse we give is entering into people's lives is too messy and costly. There's a price to pay. We enter into people's lives and we get burned. We get cynical. We decide, I'm never doing that again. Now we do learn wisdom from these experiences and there's a place for that. I think those protective walls can sometimes be a form of sin. Some years ago, we entered into the life of a lady in our neighborhood. This is not in Simi Valley. She was dealing with some really severe issues. Dawn especially entered into her life. It was costly. It was messy. It was ugly. It took a lot of time and a lot of energy. It was it was. The best part of a year of intense involvement. I honestly believe that it robbed my wife of something that maybe she's never gotten back. And in the end, I'm not sure any of it did any good. But entering in is not about results or expectations. It's about putting God on display. It's about making Him look great. It's not about me we didn't know how hard this would be when we entered into it at the beginning, but, but Dawn especially displayed God's grace well. And that's what entering in is about. So we must enter in even when it's messy or costly. Another excuse that we might use is that uh, their situation isn't that bad. I mean, why should I help these people? They have cell phones, they have cable TV. They can't be too bad off. Why should I enter? Jonathan Edwards responds to this excuse. He doesn't talk about cable TV and cell phones. Um, 
he responds to this excuse by reminding us that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Typically, we don't wait until we are starving or homeless before we do something to help ourselves. So why do we think we need to wait for that to happen to others? After all, we're to love the way Christ loves us. How does he love us? Extravagantly. Exceeding abundantly. Philippians 2.3 says, Consider others better than ourselves. So, so we should treat other people better than we treat ourselves. So, so even if we don't think their situation is that bad, first of all, we have no idea what's really going on, probably. There's people all around us who are struggling, who are marginalized, and they look okay, so we don't worry about it. But we need to enter in, even when we don't think their need is all that bad. Another excuse is, I don't have very much time or energy or money myself. I'm barely surviving. How can I give to somebody else? Edwards says that what we really mean when we say this is, I can't help anyone without depriving myself of time and money and energy and privacy. That's the price that God calls us to pay. One of the main lessons of the, of the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan is that helping others involves risk and sacrifice. He not only gave money, he inconvenienced himself. He gave emotional energy. He crossed cultural lines, very, very difficult cultural lines. He invested long term. Galatians 6.2 says that we're to bear one another's burdens and that means there's some bearing that needs to take place. We must enter in even when I don't have as much myself. Here's a tough one. These people that I'm trying to help or might help, they are or they might be ungrateful and cheats. They might abuse the time I spend with them or the money or the help that I give them. Don't raise your hands. Anyone experience this? The situation I just described in our lives with this lady, there were days when she would knock on our door 10, 12, and 15 times. I counted. And this went on and on and on, so I began to start counting just to see. We would literally sneak out the back of our house so she wouldn't see us to drive away. I would call that abusing our time and our energy. Anybody who's ever entered into others' lives has been cheated or taken advantage of or, or been, been abused. Keller says this, We all want to help kind-hearted, upright people whose poverty came upon them through no foolishness or contribution of their own and who will respond to our aid with gratitude and joy. Right? Can you amen that? But then he goes on and says this, almost no one like that exists. <laughs> Edwards argues that we are hateful people. We are ungrateful cheats. We are liars and adulterers and sinners through and through. Yet Christ sacrificed everything for us. Even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. We are totally undeserving of grace, yet God has lavished it on us. How often have we abused his gift of salvation? How often have we abused grace? How often have we trampled his blood in the fight? Yet he keeps on giving. 
we must enter in even when those we help end up being ungrateful. We enter into people's lives to make God look good, to put Him on display. We don't enter in for results or for expectations. Now, this is all quite messy. Right? You've got a million questions and thoughts going through your head. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. You don't know, yeah, but. I get it. There's, there's so many aspects of doing justice that we're not talking about. There's so many reasons I don't want to enter in. But I keep banging my head up against the fact that Jesus kept giving and giving and giving to the point of betrayal and rejection and death so that he could save a hateful, sinful, ungrateful chief like me. He entered into the world as a man even when he knew we were going to kill him. And I have to ask, do I really want to be like Christ? Do I really want to be like Jesus? Why is there no justice? Because of sin. And sin is exceedingly sinful. Isaiah 59, verses 15 and 16 there. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So the second question we have to ask and answer is what is the solution? There is no justice. There was no man to enter in. What's the solution? Keep reading in verse 16. Then his own arm, God's own arm, brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Thank God there is an answer, that there is a solution, that there is a man, and it's Jesus. Here he comes to solve, up this, solve, solve this messed up situation. He is the answer. Since there was no man, he became the man. This imagery shows him as a, as a warrior, fully clothed in his armor, ready to do battle with sin. Certainly, Paul had this passage in mind. He, he wrote in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God. Paul, Paul knew his Old Testament. He knew Isaiah 59. God takes the warrior stance here so he can attack sin and redeem the world. He is a fearsome warrior who pours out his wrath. Sin. He wears these garments of vengeance. There's his retributive justice. He will punish the evildoers, and he is quite capable of doing so as the sovereign warrior. Look at verses 19 and 20. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun or the east. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind, same word as spirit, which the wind or the spirit of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression or sin, declares the Lord. From the east to the west, the name of God will be feared. He comes roaring in, driven by the Spirit to destroy sin and evil and injustice. This is our God fighting for us as people. He's a patient, compassionate warrior God. He longs 
for us to accept his defeat of sin. This is the side of God's justice that we should crave to imitate. As God has entered into our wretched sinful lives to redeem us, so we should enter into the lives around us who have been marginalized to do justice and proclaim freedom, even when it's hard. Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood. He paid the ultimate final once-for-all price. He entered in even when he knew the cost. Look at the last verse of the chapter. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit is upon you. And my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So God gives us the Holy Spirit, and He gives us His Word. He cleanses us from sin so that we can go into all the world in the power of the Holy Spirit to declare the Word of God to all nations, all languages, all social classes, all races, all generations, all skin colors all disabilities, all, all sizes, all marginalized people should be the recipients of the gospel, the word of God that we take for. There needs to be all types and kinds of people in the body of Christ in Cornerstone Church. We need young and old, fat and skinny, uh, ugly and handsome, uh, uh, beautiful and not so beautiful, white and black, healthy and sick, rich and poor, married and single. We need all kinds of people within Cornerstone Church, so that we can display God well. We do whatever it takes for every single person to flourish as a follower of Jesus, so that we can fulfill his purpose for us on earth to be a blessing to others. It's a sick world out there. We need an example. We need a model of not being sick. And that's us. God has chosen to call out people so that we can go into all the world, so we can send some of our own to Poland, and send some of our own to North Hollywood, and send some of our own to Japan to be a blessing to people out there. So we enter in even when. Now, all this is possible because of the sacrifice that Jesus made in the cross. So I think it's really appropriate that as we close out our service this morning, we take the Lord's Supper. 